Father, in great humble trust, we come again to you and to your word. And as we pause this morning to once again reflect upon what you have to say to your church and to each one of us, Father, we pray that you are quiet in our hearts. In this time of fear, in this time of anxiety, Father, may you quieten our hearts to allow us once again to hear what your Spirit has to say to us, to once again clothe ourselves with Jesus and not to gratify the sinful desires of this world. So clothe us with Jesus, dress us in his love, allow us to hear him again as he speaks to us. In his name we pray. Amen. I was listening to a counselling seminar where three mothers were talking about the issue of pain. All three mothers have lost children when they were all very young. What's amazing about all these three mothers is that they know exactly how many days their children survived before they died. There was a particular mother who had a son who only lived for 321 days before he passed away. Ever since the son was born, he was very sickly, he was on all kinds of medication. Then one day, while the mother visited the, uh, the doctors, the doctor said to the mother, your son's health seems to be improving. He doesn't need to be on so many medications from now on. So the doctor told the mother to cut out some of the medications. The mother was just doing everything that the doctor ordered. But a week later, without any prior notice or warning, the son died in his sleep. He was only 321 days old. The mother was absolutely not prepared for it, and she and her husband did not just see it coming. It was stunning. They were numbed. They held a funeral, and the mom took a few weeks off work to grieve. But when she returned back to work, her colleague asked in innocence, So, have you recovered from, the, from your grief? The mother felt extremely, extremely offended by that, by that question. How could she ever get over the grief of her son? This is not some flu virus to get, to get over with. This was a son people are talking about. You simply just can't attend the funeral, spend a couple of weeks grieving and get over it. No, you just can't do that. How can a mother forget her pain and her precious baby? And she felt very offended. And then those feelings of guilt began flooding in. The mother kept replaying in her mind again and again the events of the last week of her son over and over again and she kept saying to herself what would I have done differently? Why did, I, why did I listen to my doctor? Why didn't I seek a second opinion? Was I a good mom? Did my son die because I was too callous and too trusting? Slowly grief turned into guilt but that was not all. Grief turned into jealousy because the mother was constantly grieving, her other children resented her because she seemed to be over-concerned over this dead son. And just when you thought things would not get any worse, this woman's husband came home one night and said that he wants to move out of the house because there was another lady 
in his life. Grief is very complex. It's like an octopus with lots of tentacles. Re grief rarely travels alone. It brings with it feelings of misery, jealousy, hatred, guilt, and even fear. For years, this mother confessed that she had fear of going to the playground because the playground reminded her of her son, that her son would be old enough right now to be sitting on the swing playing with the other children. Pain and grief are very complex. They're grateful to the sufferer. And if handled wrongly, they can be toxic then turn the people around us against us. So my question is, why does God give us grief? Why does God give us pain? Why does pain have to be so complex? Why does pain have to be so lingering? Why does pain have to bring in all kinds of emotions to destroy us? Grief, guilt, and all of these complex emotions. Grief is the uninvited guest who refuses to go away. The Bible presents to us a number of reasons why God allows pain to exist. Sometimes pain is the outcome of our fallen and sinful human, uh, uh, sinful world. The book of Job tells us that sometimes there is no reason why pain exists. Sometimes we suffer because of sin. Sometimes we suffer because it is part of our job description as Christians. I wanted to pause to explore this last option today from our passage this morning. Grief is part of our job description as Christians. Where do I get that? I get it out of Colossians chapter 1 verse 24 when Paul says now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is in the church Paul sees suffering very differently from how we see suffering Paul sees suffering as a job description of who he is as a Christian I suffer so that to fill up what is lacking with regards to Christ's afflictions. What on earth does Paul mean? Let me tell you what Paul doesn't mean. Uh, this verse doesn't mean that Jesus suffering on the cross somehow is lacking, that Paul had to fill it up to say that it would be heresy because Christ suffering in the cross is complete. The work of the cross is complete in Christ. So what is this lacking um, uh, uh, in regard to Christ's affliction? It's because we as the church, we as Christians have a job. We are to live out the gospel. We are to be ambassadors of the gospel. We are to show the world what the cross means. We are to show the world the afflictions of the cross. God gives us afflictions so that our afflictions may point us to the sufferings of Christ so that the world can see Christ and be saved by Him. So we have a job description, just as Paul felt that. 
we have a job description to show the world the afflictions of Christ. Sometimes God gives us afflictions, grief, and pain so that we can show the world that Jesus can save us out of our grief and pain. Because we have a job description, and our job description is to show the world through our lives, through our afflictions, that Jesus Christ is our Savior and the ultimate Savior of this world. But it's this part of the job description that's often been blotted out that people don't want to talk about. Our, we are to share, in Paul's words in the book of Philippians, in the sufferings of Christ. Why? To show the world the gospel. This is what the author of Ezra and Nehemiah wants to share with us in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. We've been following through our podcast series. We've been looking through um, the book of Ezra. And we've been here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. But let me just recap for you. The book starts off with God stirring the spirit of King Cyrus, the king of Persia, to issue an edict that God's people could return home to Jerusalem from Babylon. And the Bible makes it clear in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, that this was not a coincidence. It was to fulfill God's prophecy through the prophet Jeremiah that they would return back home. And the return back from Babylon back to Jerusalem was part of God's saving act, was to show that God was the savior of Israel, to bring them back home after years in exile. And the people finally returned home to Jerusalem. The returnees returned home, they built an altar, and they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, thanking God for His salvation. Now after they have tasted and enjoyed God's salvation, they have a job to do. They have to show the people living around them God's salvation. And how do we show the world God's salvation? God often uses suffering. We enter now into Ezra chapters 4 to 6. Ezra chapter 4 to 6 are some of the most painful sections of the book. These are the people returning to build God's temple in Jerusalem. But for 18 years, the temple building construction project was stopped. There was opposition after opposition. Next week, we're going to read one opposition after another, after another. It's like a tide of suffering and grief that's been brought upon the people that never seems to end. And the suffering was not just for 18 days, but for 18 years to prevent God's temple from being built. The opposition gets very ugly. The people around them, their enemies, use all kinds of malicious things to bring grief and suffering upon God's people. They spread lies, they spread gossip, they use letters, which is a very new form of communication for the Israelites at this time, for the Jews at this time. They begin to use letters to malign the people of God and they spread all kinds of news, not only just amongst themselves, but even to the kings of Persia. 
and this is going to get very, very ugly. And even after the temple was built, the opposition still did not end. The people of God began a journey of grief and suffering for many, many years to come. How does suffering therefore help us to bring out the gospel? Two things, two ways. Two ways in which suffering helps bring out the gospel in us. Number one, suffering reveals, suffering reveals who our Savior is. Suffering reveals who our Savior is. Ezra chapter 4 begins by introducing us to the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. It's a good thing here that we're told in chapter 4 verse 1 that, uh, the, that, that they are the enemies. Because if you read verse 2, the people around them sounds like a, sounds very friendly and helpful neighbors. These are most likely the people who are living in Jerusalem while the Jews return. They seem to be very nice and helpful, and we would have been uh, uh, um, tricked by them if it were not for verse 1. But here in verse 2 we read, They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you we seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the time of Asher Hayden, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Not only are these so-called enemies friendly and helpful, but they seem to be seem to claim to be believers of Yahweh, just like the Jews. We are told that like the Jews, they sought the Lord. Like the Jews, they offered sacrifices. Just as the Jews, they, the Jews did in Ezra chapter 3, verse 3, they offered sacrifices to God. Just like these Jews who experienced God's saving grace as God led them out of Babylon, here they claim that God had brought them out, but in the time of Asher Hayden, king of Ezra, so they claim to be you know, believers, at least, uh, like the Jews. This reminds me of a time when I was a doctoral student in Florida. I, was, I found myself a one-bedroom apartment that was really cheap. The neighborhood was friendly and was close to my school. So I thought that was the best place God had provided for me. Until a few weeks before I graduated, while I was driving home, the roads that led to my apartment were all sealed off by the police. So I stopped and asked one of the policemen what was happening. And I was told that there was a murder in the neighborhood and the murderer was still running and escaping in the neighborhood and the police is trying to catch him. I was then told that uh, I should not enter the neighborhood, go to the nearby Walmart, spend a few hours there before returning. It was then that I realized for the very first time that my neighborhood was not as friendly and as nice as I thought. It was actually one of the roughest places in town where drug trafficking actually happened just outside my apartment complex. No wonder the rent was so cheap. But God protected me. Uh, it was only just a few weeks before my graduation. God revealed all these truths to me. So here the neighbors appear to be very friendly. They appear to be followers of Yahweh. They burned sacrifices. They sought the Lord, experienced God's salvation. But in reality, there was another side to them. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the heads of the family 
were not as gullible as me. They knew and saw through these uh, neighbors that they knew that they were not on their side, that they were enemies. And they could see through their intentions. So we read in verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, you, are, you have no part with us in the building of the temple of our God. We, would, we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. How did Joshua, Zerubbabel, and the heads of the family know? How do you know that people who claim to be Christians really embrace the gospel? We really can't tell whether a person really embraced the gospel until troubles, until afflictions, until sufferings come. These so-called neighbors of the Jews, of the returnees, seem to be very nice and friendly and seem to be very religious and pious. But do they really embrace the same gospel as the returnees? It's when troubles come. It's when they were rejected. It's when Joshua and the leader said, No, we don't need your help. Look what happened. Verse 4. Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. It's when troubles come, troubles revealed our hearts. It's when people say no. And when your plans get terminated or truncated, reveals our hearts where we actually stand and begins to show us the hearts of these neighbors. Were they true worshippers of God? No. Because as soon as troubles arise, what did they do? They changed. They revealed what was in their heart. They began to discourage the people of Judah and they made them afraid. Troubles revealed our hearts, whether we really believe in God as our Savior or ourselves. So that's why sometimes God gives us troubles. That's why sometimes God gives us afflictions and grief. Because they reveal who we turn to. These neighbors of the Jew, of the returnees, claim to say that they believe in God as their Savior. But when troubles come, when things disagree with them, they don't turn to God, they turn to themselves and they begin to discourage the people of God. In the 4th century, there was a church father by the name of John Chrysostom. Chrysostom. He was a powerful preacher and the men and women turned to him to listen to God's word. But there was always opposition when God's word is being preached. So he was brought by some evil men to the emperor. The emperor wanted to banish Chrysostom uh, so that he would give up Christ. Chrysostom said, you cannot banish me because the whole world is my father's land. The emperor then said, then I will take away your property. Oh, you cannot, the church father said. My treasures are in heaven. Then I will take you to a place where there is no friend of yours to speak to. Chrysostom said, No, you cannot. I have a friend who is closer than a brother. I have Christ forever. 
The emperor exasperated, threatened that I will take away your life. You cannot, John Chrysostom said. My life is hidden with Christ, with God in Christ. What is John Chrysostom, John's Chrysostom saying here? It doesn't matter. Sufferings may come, and when sufferings come, it reveals my heart. My heart is with Christ. It's not in these things of the world. It's not in getting my way. It's not in myself and my own agenda. You can take away my friends. You can take away my property. You can take away my health. You can banish me to the corners of the world. But it doesn't matter. Christ is my Savior and He is with me forever. What a contrast compared to the neighbors of the returnees when their ways were stopped. They immediately turn to themselves and their gender and begin to fill with anger to discourage the returnings. Sufferings revealed what is in our hearts. Is Jesus Christ our gender, our help, our Savior? Or is it my way, my thoughts, my agenda that will save me? Secondly, Sufferings allow God to work. The major theme in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is God in action. There are many ways in which God works in the Bible, but in Ezra and Nehemiah, God works through the stirring of the spirits of the human being of human beings. In Ezra chapter one verse one, we are told that God stirred the spirit of Cyrus to allow the people of Israel to return to Judah, uh, to Jerusalem. And we are also told that God stirred in chapter 1 verse 5, the spirits of the heads of the families in Judah and Benjamin so that they would want to return. It's God working, God stirring. And now it's God who stirred the king of Persia to allow them to complete the building of the temple. It's always the, the, the grand theme in Ezra and Nehemiah is God at work. But there is a problem. There is a big problem. And the big problem is us. We don't want God to work. We want to rival God. We want to do it ourselves. We want to be the action heroes of the day. We want to be the Iron Man of today. We want to be the Superman that gets things done. We want to be the Batman to save the world and its corruption. We want to be we and we want to be known. This is why God had to stop the work of the building of the temple for 18 years. And God has to allow the returnees, the Jewish returnees, to enter into this time, especially in Ezra 4 to 6, some of the most lingering times where they could do nothing but to hear the opposition, the lies that the enemies were spreading all through these 18 years and more. Why? To cripple us, to make us impotent, so that God, can be at work. The grand theme of Ezra that God is the one that is the one working and God is in action is a theme very hard to grasp by us as human beings because we don't want God to work. 
We won't say that, but we believe in the hearts. It's up to us to save ourselves. It's up to us to plan the future. It's up to us to build God's temple. It's up to us to save the church in this time of the coronavirus. But it's not up to us. It's God at work. That's what the gospel is. We can't save ourselves. God needs to save us. But we won't let God save us because we're too proud. We are too pragmatic. So God has to allow the Jews to wait 18 years to cripple them, to make them realize that they can't do it. They can't build the temple by their own strength, by their own might. They will go nowhere. And there was this volley of letters sent in to show them that they need God to be at the center of the action. So through the foreign kings, through the volley of letters, through the lies and discouragements and all the evil things that they're going to hear, God's going to render them powerless so that they will ultimately rely on God. And how does the, this section of Ezra, Ezra 4 to 6, end? I'm going to end with some beautiful words in Ezra chapter, chapter 6, verse 22. The section is going to end with these words. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra 6.22. For seven days they celebrated with joy the feasts of the unleavened bread, because the Lord God had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he might assist them in the work of the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. God had to use these 18 years to cripple his people so that he can be the one in action, so that he can fill the people with joy, so that he can change the attitude. It's not the people that's going to change the attitude of the kings. It's God. God's going to change the attitude of the king of Assyria. It's God who is going to assist and be the builder of his temple. Suffering sometimes given to us to cripple us, so that we will not depend upon ourselves but depend upon God. And it's difficult. It's complex. Just like the opening illustration reminds you, it's so complex. Suffering is so complex. It's not just pain. It's entangled with so many emotions. And I'm not trying to simplify. It's complex. But it serves a godly purpose when it's viewed in, through the eyes of the gospel to make us allow God to work through us. We live in perilous times in this age of the coronavirus and the epidemic that's uh, sweeping across, not just Australia, but sweeping across the world. Uh, initially, we thought it was just China, but it's now bigger than China, sweeping across almost every country on this planet. It's not being touched by the coronavirus, bringing sufferings of all kinds, physical, economical, social, and all kinds of sufferings that's being meted out. But I think sometimes God does that. Not because He's cruel, not because He's malicious, not because He doesn't care, but to render us helpless so that he can be at work. God may place you in difficult situations today, 
difficult situations at work, difficult marriages, difficult churches, difficult surroundings, and, and we can all agree a difficult society right now with the virus going around. But God has His purpose. Recently, historian Mark Knoll has written about the faith of U.S. President Abraham Lincoln. Many of you may know that um, Abraham Lincoln had a very difficult wife. They had a difficult marriage together, and Mrs. Lincoln pushed Link, uh, Abraham relentlessly to seek high public office. She often complained endlessly about poverty when they were studying out. She overran her budget shamelessly, when both when they were in Springville and also in the White House. She abused servants as if they were slaves, and she ragged on Abraham Lincoln when he paid uh, his servants some extra cash. She assaulted him more than one, one occasion, sometimes with firewood and throwing potatoes at her own husband. She probably chased him around with a knife one time in the backyard while they were still in Springfield. She cheated, she treated him, uh, uh, she treated his casual contacts with attractive females as a direct threat. Yet she flirts around and dress, was dressed to kill in many occasions. A regular visitor to the White House wrote of Mrs. Lincoln that she was, in quotations, a vain, passionately fond of dress and wore her dresses much shorter at the top and longer at the train than even fashion's design, uh, fashion's demanded. She had great pride in an elegant neck and her bust and she grieved the president greatly by her constant display of her personal and fine clothes. It was a painful marriage that Abraham Lincoln had. But yet the two stayed together. They embraced the pain. They did not remove the pain. But let me tell you what was the gain. And this is what Mark Knowles writes. How could Abraham Lincoln, when he was president, work so effortlessly with the rampant egos who filled his administration? It was because the long years, the long years of dealing with his tempestuous wife had prepared Abraham Lincoln to understand at first hand what it means to be temperate, what it means to be tolerant, what it means to be forgiving. And that's why Abraham, of all the presidents of the United States, was able to exemplify patience the best. He was able to work with a very difficult cabinet. Why? Because the many years of afflictions, the many years of suffering has allowed him to allow God to work in his own life. So that when he faced greater trials, when he faced greater trials on a more international and national level, he was able to endure them because he knew what it means to trust the saving work of Jesus, to allow God to be the one in action. We are not the action heroes. God is. Let God play His part. He is the Savior of this world, the Savior of your life, and the Savior of 
my life. Let him have that role. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you, Lord God, that you have reminded us again that we cannot save ourselves. And many times we do not know the gospel. We do not know this treasured gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. That we think that we are the saviors of our own world. It's all up to us. It's all up to our own strength. And that's why you have to use it many times by your grace and mercy, sufferings to let go of ourselves, to let God work. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah reminds us that it's God who stirred the hearts the spirit of Cyrus. It's God who stirred the spirit of the family heads of Judah and, Ju and Benjamin. It's God who stirred his people to work. It's not up to us. Father, we just want to pray for your Holy Spirit to take control of our situations, to take control of our future, especially when we live in such turbulent times right now in this age of the coronavirus epidemic. So Father, we just want to pray that you take charge, that you save us. We thank you that you have often used sufferings to remind us to let go of our own hands on ourselves and to place our hands again at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the Savior work again in your people's lives today, in your church today. We ask this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.